All right, open your Bible to Judges chapter 4. We're jumping back this morning into our series. Uh, I know we've been out of it for a couple weeks, but we're going to be jumping back into the book of Judges, a series that we've entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. And this morning we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5, but I invite you to stand. I want to read into your hearing this morning Judges chapter 4, and we're going to beginning verse 1, and I'm just going to read through verse 7. Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The author writes, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Deborah, a prophetess, and the wife of Lipidoth was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. She summoned Barak, son of Abidnamam, and from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of when God fights for you. Of when God fights for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we listen to your words proclaimed to us. God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength this morning to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, back in 2017, the American Bar Association, they released a report regarding individuals who represent themselves in court rather than hiring an attorney. And the report noted that in civil cases, so in civil cases, one out of six individuals represent themselves. And the reason for this is because there are no court-appointed attorneys for civil cases. So for things like accidents or divorce or evictions or child custody hearings, you have to provide your own lawyer. And I don't know if you know this, but hiring a lawyer is a very expensive thing. Hopefully you never need to know that, but... but Trust me when I tell you that hiring a lawyer is very expensive. And what this report also revealed, what many of us have known for quite some time, is that the judicial system tends to bend toward those with money and resources. And so the report noted, considering evictions, the study found that from 2014 to 2016, renters who lacked legal representation were evicted. Listen to this. They were evicted 68% of the time from private housing and 43% of the time from public housing. Meanwhile, those who were represented by counsel, so those who had lawyers, they kept their private housing 94% of the time, and their public housing 80% of the time. But this next line was very interesting to me. This This is what got me. They said, interventions make a difference. 
interventions make a difference. And so what this report ultimately reveals is that in the legal system, it's hard to overcome without someone fighting for you. Without an advocate who knows the legal system, who understands the law, who has been in the courtroom and knows how to navigate the courtroom, someone who has been there before, without someone who has the resources that you and I don't have, it is unlikely to be a positive outcome. You won't win. But while this rings true in the courtroom, the same reality is true in our lives as well. Throughout our lives, there'll be obstacles, there'll be trials, there'll be battles in front of us that we cannot overcome by ourselves, and we too will need an advocate. And most of us in this room have experienced this some, at some point in physical ways. We've faced trials, we've faced health crises or hardships that were too big for us to handle, and by the grace of God, we had a friend or a family member, maybe a doctor, maybe even a stranger, walk us through what we needed to do. They helped us overcome, but maybe, maybe that doesn't resonate with you. Well, if you are here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a living testimony to the fact that there are times in your life when you need an advocate. There are times in your life when you need an advocate. If you are here in Christ, you know this to be true because our sin separated us from God. And there was nothing we could do to change that. We could not stand before a holy God on our own. And yet, in Christ Jesus, we have an advocate with the Father. John says it like this in 1 John 2, 1. He says, my little children... I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And what I'm getting at is that there are times when the trial in front of you is just too much for you. There are times when the pain is so strong that there is no way you can fight through it on your own. There are times when the battle you face is a sure loss if it is left to you alone. But here it is. Here's the good news. The reason I got up this morning is to tell you that there is a God in heaven who will fight for you. There is a God who will fight for you. And he has been fighting for his people as long as the fight has ensued. And in our text this morning, we encounter God fighting for his people. We encounter another hard situation that Israel finds itself in. We we examine another judge, and more than anything, we see the amazing faithfulness of our God and his willingness to fight for his people. So here's what I want to do this morning. I I want to walk through this story to help you understand what's going on. And I, and I got to be honest, you gave me two weeks to work on this, so I had a lot of time. And when I initially finished this, this first draft, uh, I've got a little thing at the bottom of my notes that tells me how long it's likely to go. It was at like an hour and a half. So I promise we're not going to go an hour and a half. I had to rework it a little bit. But, but, but not to be out, outdone, I know that last week our brother Michael brought a message to us and he had six points. So I too have six points, six truths I want you to see this morning. And I want to walk through this text. I want to draw out some hope and hopefully some application as we consider this truth that we have a God who will fight for us. So here's the first truth that I want you to see this morning. When God fights for you, often it is the result of your cry. When God fights for you, Often, it is the result of your cry. Look with me again at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The story begins, and it says, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. 
So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. So here in the opening verses, we we already kind of get the sense that the scene is set for a major conflict, right? It's going to be a major conflict between the might of this world and the might of God. And Israel, because of their sin, is once again in captivity, but this time under King Jabin. Now here's where it gets interesting, right? Jabin is not a foreign ruler. See, up until this point, any time that Israel has been taken captive, because you know they're in this, this cycle of sin, right? They, 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 they turn from the Lord, and, and as punishment, the Lord, the Lord gives them over to captivity, and, and they're in captivity for a minute, and then they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a judge, and the judge delivers. They're faithful until the judge dies, and the cycle continues. And so this isn't the first time we've seen them in captivity, but up until this point, Israel was captive, uh, taken captive by foreign rulers. So Kishon, which is Mesopotamia, and Eglon, which is in Moab, but now it's Canaan. Do you remember the significance of Canaan? They're the very ones that Israel was supposed to drive out, but they failed to do it. And the strength of King Jabin is recorded there in verse 3. It says that Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. So relying on the strength of iron chariots... Canaan had oppressed Israel now for 20 years. Now, you may remember that iron chariots have always seemed to be a little bit of a hindrance for Israel because you remember back in Judges 1, verse 19, it says the Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the plain because those people had iron chariots. Now, now watch this. Here's why this is significant. They should have already driven out Canaan. But they didn't do it because they had iron chariots. Now, now I want to be clear. In, in Judges 1.19, when it says they weren't able to drive them out because they had iron chariots, it's not that they didn't have the strength to do it because God had already promised the victory and he was on their side. It was one of those moments where they looked at the might of this world and they thought they just might be a little bit more powerful than our God. So rather than drive them out, they settled and allowed Canaan to stay in the land. And here's what I want you to see. Their failure to drive out the people, their past disobedience, coupled with their active sin, led to the difficulty that they were currently experiencing. Now, this is, this is a good place for us to pause because this is a good reminder for us. There are times when disobedience to God leads to temporary relief, but it always leads to greater difficulty down the road. There are times when disobedience to God leads to temporary relief, but it always leads to greater difficulty down the road. And that's the story of Judah or of Israel right here in Judges 4. Rather than experiencing the blessing of living in the land as God had intended them for because of their refusal to drive out Canaan because they had iron chariots, coupled with their current disbelief, They're in a predicament that's just too much for them to handle. 
But we don't necessarily have to look at Israel, do we? We know it's true in our own lives. Let's be honest. There are times when compromising is a little bit easier because it brings temporary relief in the moment. But we've had some situations in our life where we've been a few, few months, few weeks, few years down the road and we look back and say, man, it really wasn't better for me to compromise there. And we have to be reminded that while disobedience might lead to temporary relief, it always leads to greater difficulty down the road. What I'm trying to tell you is faithfulness is worth it. And Israel's difficulty here in Judges 4 is a compounding result of their own failures. They failed to drive out Canaan. And then in verse 1, it says the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. They are in a situation that they cannot overcome. So what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Now, a couple of things we have to mention here. Once again, it does not appear that they're crying out to the Lord as a cry of repentance. They cry out once again because the consequences are too great for them and their own inability to overcome. It says there in in verse 3, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Here's why. Because, not because they had sinned, but because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Now, I know we've we've hit on this with each of the judges up until this point, and, and we've come down pretty hard on Israel for not crying out because they understood their sin, but simply crying out because they wanted the consequences to change, and that's not a good thing. But at this point, I do want to give them a little bit of credit. Because they may not have fully understood the weight of their sin, but to their credit, time and time again, they cry out to the right person. Here's what I want you to see. Time and time again, when their backs are against the wall, when they have no hope, Israel always calls out to God. But the credit's not really due them, because here's what's even more amazing. Time and time again, when their backs are against the wall, when they have no hope, even when they don't fully understand the weight of their sin, God responds to their cries. Now this is positioned to teach us a very significant truth this morning. The measure of God's faithfulness has never depended on the accuracy of of our call. I mean, let me say that again. I want you to get it. That the measure of God's faithfulness, this is good news. The measure of God's faithfulness has never depended on the accuracy of our call. A a, a passage that we quote often, 2 Timothy 2.13, that if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness to the cry of his children has never depended on the perfection of his children's cry, rather the presence of it. Now listen, I'm not trying to tell you that God will only fight for his children when they cry out. Right now, even as we sit in this room, there is a cosmic battle raging that you have no awareness of. There are times in your life when God has protected you from walking down the street. When that person had their eyes fixed on you, they were going to mug you, they were going to take your stuff. There have been times when you were driving on the highway and the only reason that tractor trailer didn't come into your lane is because God was fighting for you and God was protecting you. God works even when we can't see it. He's just good like that. But what I want you to understand is that there are some trials, there are some battles, there are some moments in your life when God is ready, willing, and waiting to fight for you. The problem is that you haven't talked to him about it. 
You know, I remember a gentleman I met with a few years ago. It's all right, I can tell his story. He's not in Newbreed, so I'm allowed to tell his story. But, but I had been counseling him for a while. And this was a, a man who loved Jesus but was having some struggles in his marriage. He was fighting some sin. He, he was working on it. He was, just, he was trying to do what honored the Lord. And so I'd been counseling him, caring for him. And, and we'd been going at it for a couple of months. And I remember sitting down with him at one meeting. And he, he, I, mean, I knew it when he came and he was just frustrated. And in his frustration, he, he started to, to be really honest and vulnerable to me. And he's like, I'm just really frustrated, Michael. And the reason I'm frustrated is because I, 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 am, I am believing that God can do this and this. And I want to see this happen. And all the things that he wanted to see were good things. They were holy things. They were right things. But it seemed like at every turn, he was just losing the battle. And I don't know whether it was the Holy Spirit or why. But, but I remember looking at him and just saying, brother, can I ask you a question? Have you asked God to do any of those things? And, and you know that look that people get on their face, right? When it's that aha moment. Yeah, he had that. And he'd realized that in all of his striving and all of his yearning and all of his wanting, he wanted good things. He was hoping for good things. He was expecting God to do good things, but he'd never actually asked God to do any of them. And so we spent time right there as we were meeting together, praying and pleading for God to work in these ways. Now, here's the thing. I believe that prayer matters. I do. I believe that there are times when you pray and God responds. And by his grace, this was one of those times. It wasn't an immediate thing that everything he wanted automatically happened. But, but as time went on, we were able to look back to that moment and begin to see the hand of God working in his life, doing the things that he was wanting God to do, overcoming in areas of struggle and sin where he was previously unable and it's because I believe that God was just waiting for him to ask for help when God fights for us often it is the result of our cry but here's the second truth that I want you to see this morning when God fights for you he can use whoever he wishes when God fights for you he can use whoever he wishes now, there's something interesting about the book of Judges. I like this about the book of Judges. No other book in the Old Testament highlights women as much as Judges does. Even in this story, there are two women who are the prominent and significant players in the story. In verses 4 and 5, we're introduced to the initial character who God will use for the deliverance of his people. We're introduced to Deborah. Look at Judges 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, Deborah a prophetess, and the wife, the wife of Lipidoth was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. Now, a couple of things that are worth noting about Deborah. Here's the first. She was a prophetess. So during this time, she was the instrument through which God's word was communicated to the people. That was the purpose of prophets in the Old Testament. God would speak to them and they would then deliver that message to the people. They were God's mouthpiece on earth. And so Deborah is functioning in that role. She was functioning in that role even before the people cried out for deliverance. So Deborah is a prophetess. And the text says she was judging Israel at the time. Now here's what else is interesting. She's a little little different than the other judges 
in that their service as a judge, so the judges we've looked at so far, began for the sole purpose of delivering the people at a given time, and it ended when the deliverance was done. That's what we've seen in the story so far. The people are in captivity, they cry out to God, and God raises up a judge in that moment to deliver them from captivity, and the judge's role is finished when the captivity is over. But you have Deborah here who has been actively judging the people prior to them crying out to God. So she was already a prophetess and a judge. Now, something I have to address here. I'm going to step a little bit sideways on the text, but I think it's important. Some have struggled with Deborah possessing this role and function in the life of Israel. Some have struggled with the reason why God would use her to be a prophetess. I remember one of my earliest introductions to the story of Deborah, the first time that I can remember hearing it taught, it was taught in such a way where the argument was made that the reason, the only reason that Deborah was a prophetess and a judge was because of a failure of male leadership. All right, I see some of you shaking your head. You've heard that too. That that's the way it's taught, that the reason that Deborah is used by God, the reason that she is a prophetess in this season in the life of Israel is because of a failure of male leadership. And then what they'll do is they'll look at what comes next with Barak as a justification for that belief, saying he was a poor leader. We'll talk more about him in a minute, and I think clear up the misunderstanding about him. But, but that's the way that I was introduced to Deborah. But here's the problem with this understanding. You just can't get it from the text. You have to read your opinion into the Bible because it's not there in Judges chapter 4. Now listen, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I hold to, I guess, what you would call a complementarian view. I think it's still a complementarian view. Some people would argue that it is what it is. But what I mean when I say complementarian is I believe that God created both men and women in his image. They both possess equal dignity and equal worth, but God uses them differently. And in the church, when I read the Bible, I'm just going to tell you what I see when I read the Bible. I see the Word of God limiting the role of elder to qualified men. I I see it. I'll be honest, sometimes I wish it wasn't there, but I, I trust the Word of God. I believe that God limits the role in the church. God limits the role of elder to men only. But in terms of the church, that's it. In regards to the church, that's all. That's the only restriction I see. Now, I know some are immediately going to go to 1 Timothy 2 where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise over a man. But we have to understand that passage in 1 Timothy 2 in its context. And I agree with what theologian Dr. John Hammett writes about that. And, and let me read it to you. He says, the passage, that's 1 Timothy 2, begins with the call to let women learn. A somewhat revolutionary idea in some parts of the Mediterranean world of that time. But Paul continues, women should not teach or exercise authority over a man. But how does this text relate to the roles in the church? It seems clear from elsewhere in scripture that this is not a blanket prohibition. For example, believers, all believers are commanded to teach and admonish one another. And Paul gives instructions concerning the praying and prophesying of women. Context seems to indicate that the type of teaching and authority Paul has in mind is that of an elder. For the qualifications for that office is the topic that Paul turns to in 1 Timothy 3. And the duties of an elder include authoritative teaching and leading. Thus, here it is, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, prohibits a woman from functioning as elders in the local church. Beyond that, the application of the authority is difficult. 
For it is difficult to match Paul's understanding of teaching and exercising authority to contemporary situations. So here's what I'm getting at. A problem occurs when we try to go further than what the Bible allows. I understand that complementarianism, as I understand it, is something that is drawn out of the Bible. It comes from passages like 1 Timothy 2. I'm drawing this idea out of the Bible. It is not something, though, that I'm allowed to read into the Bible. One of, my, one of my friends, Jared Burkholder, in one of our doctoral discussions, he mentioned during a discussion about this passage that complementarianism is not a hermeneutic. In other words, it's not a helpful way to try to interpret the Bible by reading what you think into the Bible. It's not something we want to read into every situation. Though complementarianism, this idea of men in roles of elder as, as, as an elder only, though, though I think you can draw it from the scripture, it doesn't mean that we are allowed to read that into everything that we see. And if we do, we will come to conclusions that some have come to that the only reason that Deborah was used in this way was because men failed. But I think a more likely explanation is that when God fights for us, He can use whoever he wishes. Now listen, I'm going to use this moment since I'm already here and try to encourage our sisters a little bit. Sisters, I want you to know that the church needs you. God wants to use you, and I want you to hear from me, your pastor, that you are not second string when it comes to this church and when it comes to ministry. You are not waiting on the bench and only useful to the church and the kingdom if men drop the ball. God has called you. God has equipped you, and more than anything, God expects you to serve. And men, let me speak to you for a moment. If you are unwilling to receive correction, rebuke, exhortation, spiritual encouragement, and teaching from women. That's not biblical fidelity. That's misogyny. And we have a problem. Now, I got to leave that there before I mess around and preach a different sermon. But Deborah is in this role as a prophetess and a judge because God wants to use her. There are times when God will use other people in your life to be the instrument of deliverance that he intends to use for your good. And let's just pause here and remind us of something that we already know. This should push us to value those that God has placed around us. We talk about it all the time here at Newbreed. What we do in this place, this covenant community, it matters. This isn't just a social gathering. We need one another. We need to be speaking into one another's lives, to be encouraging, to be correcting, to rebuking. And often that will be the means of deliverance that God uses for our good. The problem comes when we treat the body and the fellowship as if it's optional. And oftentimes we're avoiding the very instrument that God intends to use for our good in seasons of struggle. We need one another. What we do in this place matters. The fellowship, the covenant community, it matters. Here's the third truth that I want you to see. When God fights for you, He will work through His Word. When God fights for you, He will work through His Word. Look at what happens in verses 6 through 10. It says, She, that's Deborah, she summoned Barak, son of Abinamam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. 
Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry, at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will gladly go with you, she said. But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now jump down to verse 12. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinamam, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the troops who were with him from the Harasheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So here, we're introduced to Barak. And while Deborah is the prophetess and the judge, Barak is the one God has commanded to lead the Israelite people into battle. Now here's, here's where I think people get confused. They read Deborah's instructions in verse 6 where, where she says, Hasn't the Lord the God of Israel commanded you go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites? And they read this as if Deborah is having to remind Barak of something that he's not acting on because of unfaithfulness. That's where a lot of people get the idea that the only reason Deborah was a prophetess and a judge is because the men weren't faithful. They read this and say, well, look, Barak's being unfaithful. But I don't think that seems to be the case when you examine what Deborah is saying. Because the Hebrew word there for hasn't, where it says hasn't the Lord, it could also be translated indeed. So it could read, indeed the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you. And I don't believe that Deborah is correcting him for unfaithfulness. I think she's doing her job as a prophetess and communicating the word of God to Barak, likely for the first time. It's not that Barak has heard it and he's ignoring it. He's never heard it before. And so Deborah is telling Barak what it is the Lord intends for him. She is doing what a prophetess does and telling him what God has said. Even further, Miles Van Pelt is helpful when he adds that Barak's request that Deborah go with him into battle should not be understood as a lack of faith or as cowardice. Rather, it is an expression of dependence on the word of the Lord entrusted to Deborah. He goes on, he says, Barak's request for Deborah to lead with him along with his willingness to yield the fame of the battle to a woman is an expression of humility and faith. Not a lack of such faith. Barak is one of those who through faith conquered kingdoms. That's Hebrews 11.33. He's picking up on the fact that Barak is in the hall of faith as one who conquered kingdoms. The point is this. Deborah and Barak both understood that what mattered most was listening to the word of God. They understood that there is power in the word of God. There is strength in the word of God. There is hope in the word of God. There is direction in the word of God. And ultimately, there is deliverance in the word of God. The question that Deborah and Barak had to answer was not, does God speak? The question was, do we trust what he says? 
Do we trust the promises of God when our backs are against the wall? Do we trust the promises of God when we need deliverance and we're too weak to obtain it on our own? Do we trust that when God speaks, it's as good as done? And I believe Deborah believed the promises of God. Because notice what she says in verse 14 to Barak. I love this. She says, go. This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. That's where it gets interesting. Those words, has handed, in the Hebrew, are written in the perfect tense, meaning it describes an action that's already done. They haven't even fought the battle yet, and Deborah says it's already done. How can she say this? We'll go back to verse 14. Hasn't, or indeed, hasn't the Lord gone before you? And when Deborah says that, she is not just speaking physically. She is also speaking chronologically. She is not just saying that the Lord is marching in front of you. She is saying that the Lord has already fought the battle and won. The problem is that you just haven't caught up yet. Okay, some of y'all missed the weight of that statement. What I'm saying is that the word of God is our hope for deliverance because the word of God, it's in the word of God that we're reminded that all God's promises find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. There is no good thing God has promised. There is not a freedom offered. There is not a deliverance from trial that God has failed to come through on. The question is not if you will experience deliverance. God has already promised it. The question is when will you catch up? When will you experience what God has already done? Because we serve a God. God that sits outside of space and time. And so Deborah can look and say the battle's already over even though they haven't fought it because God's already worked. They just have to catch up. When God fights for you, he will work through his word. Here's the fourth truth that I want you to see. When God fights for you, he still requires faithfulness from you. Let me read to you the end of the story there, just starting in verse 15. I'm going to read, read through the end of the chapter. It says, The Lord threw Sisera, all his chariot, charioteers, and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. I don't have time to get into it, but there is something there that the weapon that they had placed their hope in became their hindrance, and Sisera had to abandon his iron chariots. I'm telling you, ooh, there's so much here. Let me keep going. It says, Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Then it says, Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the, the Kenite, because there was a peace between King Jabin of Hazar and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say, No. And while he was sleeping from exhaustion, Haber's wife, Jael took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. And when Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man that you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera lying dead 
with a tent peg through his temple. That day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. Here's what I want you to see. Faithfulness matters. The fact that God fights for us does not give us a license to sit back and do nothing. We still must remain faithful. And if we're honest, some of us can be tempted to take that posture, especially when God hasn't worked how and when we want him to work. We have a tendency to want to hold our faith hostage and say, all right, God, I'm just going to sit back. If you want me to follow you, then you got to do what I want you to do. And I'm not going to follow you until you do what I want you to do. And we have a temptation. There's a real temptation to try to hold our faith hostage. But what this text teaches us is that God will fight for you, but God expects faithfulness from you. And where do we see this? Well, we see it with Jael. Now, now i got to give you a little context here. We skipped over verse 11, but in verse 11, we learn something interesting about her family. It says, now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananium, which was near Kadesh. Now, we learned in chapter 1 of Judges that the Kenites, though they were not Israelites, settled with the people of Judah. They allied themselves with Judah. But here, Heber, for whatever reasons, distanced himself from the people of God. And most scholars agree that this was also an indication that he had aligned himself with the Canaanites. And the text supports this because verse 17 tells us that the reason Sisera went to Heber in the first place is because there was a peace between Heber's family and King Jabin. So it was known that Heber had walked away from Israel and was aligning himself with Canaan and King Jabin. So so check this out. I don't want you to miss this. The head of the household had aligned himself with a pagan king, but Jael Heber's wife remained faithful to the Lord. How do we know this? Because she took the life of Sisera. And there's so much we could say about this, but for the sake of time, let me say this. You cannot have the world and God. You cannot compromise for peace with this world and remain faithful to God because at some point those two things are going to come to a head and you cannot have them both. And Jael reflects this. She was willing to defy a king. She was willing to defy her husband. She was willing to defy the commander of the army because she believed faithfulness to God mattered more. And there is some beautiful irony in this account. Did you catch it? Right? You have Sisera. A master of war, commander of an army with iron chairs. He didn't get that position because he didn't know how to fight. Like, dude knows how to fight. And and yeah, he abandoned his iron chariots, but most likely he still had some weapons with him. He still had a sword, still had a shield. This is a guy who knows how to fight. By all accounts, you're not going to beat him. And here you have Jael, a woman doesn't appear to have any training in military conflict, doesn't have a sword and a shield. She has a tent spike and a hammer. And and we can't overlook this. What she did was probably a scary thing to do. I mean, what if Cicero wakes up 
right? He's sleeping. She doesn't know if he's a light sleeper, a heavy sleeper. She doesn't know. Dude just shows up. But she understands that faithfulness to God matters more, and she's willing to risk her, her life to be faithful to the Lord. And she goes in with a tent spike and a hammer and kills Sisera. And we are reminded that God does not need to use what the world values to accomplish his will. He just wants us to be faithful. He does not need anything, and yet he chooses to use our faithfulness to accomplish his will. And in this text, Jael epitomizes what the psalmist declares in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. So that's my question to you. What do you take pride in? Where do you place your trust? Is it in the things of this world? Or is it in the God who can conquer kingdoms with a tent spike and a hammer? Here's the fifth truth that I want you to see. When God fights for you, you give him all the glory. When God fights for you, you give him all the glory. Now look at the beginning of the beginning verses of chapter 5. Judges chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. It says on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinamam, saying, I know I'm saying his dad's name wrong, but it is what it is. They sang, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on this point because this will be a major theme when we consider Gideon over the next couple of weeks. But we have to be aware that when God works in our lives, and especially if he uses our faithfulness as the catalyst to accomplish that work, there is a real temptation to try and take the glory for yourself. There is a temptation to believe that you accomplished what God actually did and tried to steal his glory. That's not to say you can't give credit where credit is due. Because even in this song of praise, if you read on, Deborah is honored, Barak is honored, Jael is honored, but the worship is directed at God and God alone. And there is a real temptation for you and I when amazing things happen that God does to try to, to, try to give praise to our ingenuity, to our craftiness, to our ability to overcome, and we can miss the fact that God has fought for us and we can fail to give him the glory that is rightly due his name. And, and even though that is an egregious sin, there's another danger to that too. Because when we give others the glory that is due God for his work of deliverance, we will then look to the wrong people when trials inevitably come again and they will come again. This leads to the final truth I want you to see this morning. When God fights for you, know that he will do it again. Know that he will do it again. I'm going to be honest with you, church, I've been waiting to get to this point since I wrote it down on Wednesday. You may be thinking, well, where do you, where do you get that point from? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. You are so theologically astute. Let me, let me tell you where I get this from. I love this. Judges 4 and 5 is interesting. It's not just interesting because of the story it tells. It's interesting because of its composition. Here's what I mean. 
Judges chapter 4 gives you the narrative account of what happened. It's the story. It's telling you the story of what happened. But Judges 5 is a song of praise which also recounts what happened. So it's telling the same story, but it's doing so as they praise God through song. And a couple of commentaries I looked at, you can literally put chapter 4 and 5 next to each other and follow the progression in both of them. They're both telling the story in different ways. But what makes it even more interesting is it is almost identical to the structure, the layout, and the content of Exodus 14 and 15. Do you remember Exodus 14 and 15? Now, let me remind you, in Exodus 14... The people of God found themselves in a very precarious situation. They were being chased by Pharaoh. They had a sea in front of them and an army once again with chariots behind them. And Egypt had the upper hand. And as God parts the sea and they begin to cross, what does God do in Exodus 14? The same thing he did in Judges 4. Judges 4.15 says, The Lord threw Sisera and all his charioteers and all his army into panic or confusion before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. In Exodus 14, verses 24 through 25, During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. In Judges, the entire army was destroyed. In Exodus, the entire army was destroyed. But then, then you get to Exodus 15. And what do they do? They retell the story in a song of praise to God. And in Exodus 15, Moses and the prophetess Miriam lead the song, just like in Judges 5, how Barak and the prophetess Deborah lead the song. It's almost as if the author of Judges wants you to see, remember when God delivered in Egypt? Yeah, he did it again. But here's what's so amazing. This is not just a song of reflection. They're not just looking back. They're also looking forward because the author wants us to see that God is just consistent like that. If he did it in Exodus 14, if he did it in Judges 4, then surely he'll do it again when you get to the book of Matthew. When he fights for you, he never fails to deliver. When he fights for you, it is our confidence that God will do it again. But I'll do you one better because nearly 2,000 years ago, God provided Provided the greatest deliverance in Jesus Christ. When our sin had separated us from God, when there was no way for us to be made right with God, God did what only God could do and he provided a way of deliverance. He sent his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who died an innocent death, who was crucified. He died. He died dead, but he was raised from the grave. And here's where it's interesting once again, because just as it was Miriam and Exodus that declared the wonders of God, just as it was Deborah and Judges who declare the wonders of God. Once again, it is women who are declaring the glory of God because speaking of the resurrection, Luke writes in Luke 24 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were, were telling the apostles these things. They were declaring the wondrous resurrection. We see deliverance secured through the cross and resurrection and how it's tied to Judges 4. And we see how Judges 4 is tied to Exodus 14. 
which is also tied to Genesis chapter 3. And what I'm trying to tell you is that God is just faithful like that. He will never fail to deliver on his promise. If he delivered once, it is the guarantee that he will deliver again. And so the author of Judges is writing this because they want us to look back with confidence and they want us to look forward with hope. And it doesn't matter what you are going through this morning in this place. If Jesus has ever delivered for you, it is the guarantee that he will do it again. The question is not if he will deliver. The question is when will you catch up to what God has already done because he's just faithful like that. I'm trying to tell you, church, we serve a faithful God and he will never fail to deliver as he fights for you. And so if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, know that God has extended salvation and deliverance to you. You might be going through a whole host of issues. You might be struggling with your finances. You might be struggling with your family. You might be struggling at your job. But I need for you to hear me say, as painful as those things are, there is a greater need in your life. And it is to be delivered from the punishment of your sin, to be made right with a holy God who must judge sin. And God loves you so much that he sent his own son, God in flesh, as we just mentioned, to live the life that you should have lived but you can't and to die the death that you deserve to die. But God raised him from the dead, securing salvation and hope and deliverance. And he invites you to place your faith in him, to trust him, to turn from your sin and to run after him and find hope and salvation and deliverance. And if you are here and you are a believer, and you are just going through some stuff, if you are here and you just need deliverance, let me remind you that the cross testifies to you that God has fought for you, and if he has fought for you, it is the guarantee that he will continue to fight for you. The question is not if God will deliver you from what you are facing. The question is when will you catch up to what God has already done? And so run this race of faith with confidence, believing that you have a God who did it once and surely he'll do it again. Take heart that God is fighting for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who will never leave us and never forsake us, that you are a God who has constantly and consistently proved, even though you don't have to, you have proved that you are a faithful God. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter what lies ahead of us, we will press on with confidence, believing that we have a God who fights for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.